0: So this is the narrative of a woman who was captured by Native Americans by the Sioux tribe. This was back in the 1800s, like the mid to late 1800s, and... She talks a little bit about this tradition that they had, so I want to share it. When the Indians went to obtain their annuities, they transferred me to the Unkpapas, leaving me in their charge, where there was a young couple and an old Indian who had four wives. He had been very brave, it was said, for he had endured a trial. So, here the white woman is telling about what happened when the tribe that she was with would go to get supplies and things. So, when they went off to get supplies, they would leave her with another tribe because they didn't want the white people that they might see along the way or where they were getting supplies to see that they had a white person captive because it would start trouble. So, they were hiding the fact that they had this woman captive. When the Indians went to obtain their annuities, they tried transferred me to the Ankh-Papas, leaving me in their charge, where there was a young couple, and an old Indian, who had four wives. He had been very brave, it was said, for he had endured the trial which proves the successful warrior. He was one of those who looked at the sun without failing in heart or strength. This custom is as follows. The one who undergoes this operation is nearly naked and is suspended from the upper end of a pole by a cord which is tied Tied to some splints which run through the flesh of both breasts. The body of his weight is hung from it, the feet still upon the ground helping support it very little, and in his left hand he holds his favorite bow, and in his right, with a firm hold, his medicine bag. A great crowd usually looks on sympathizing and encouraging him, but he still continues to hang and look at the sun without paying the least attention to anyone about him. The mystery men beat their drums in and shake their rattles and sing as loud as they can yell, to strengthen his heart to look at the sun from its rising until its setting, at which time, if his heart and strength have not failed him, he is cut down, receives a liberal donation of presents, which are piled before him during the day, and also the name and style of a doctor or medicine man, which lasts him and ensures him respect through life. It is considered a test of bravery. superstitions. Seems to have full sway among the Indians, just as much as heathen lands beyond the sea, where the Burma mother casts her child to the crocodile to appease the great spirit. So that is from Narrative of My Captivity Among the Sioux Indians by Fanny Kelly. There are other parts of this book that I want to share. I learned about this book from a YouTube channel called Unworthy History. He likes to talk about the history that they did not teach us in school. And after reading a lot. Out of this book, I can understand why they didn't teach it in school. There's a whole lot of gruesome brutality. Here, Fanny Kelly is describing a little bit more about what life was like with the Native American tribe that she was with, and keep in mind that she was being held captive, so her opinion of them is probably not entirely positive. But I think it sheds some important light on the practices of this group of Native American people. Here we go: an Indian camp at close of day presents a most animated picture. The squaws passing to and fro, loaded with wool. Wood and water, or meat, or guiding the sledges drawn by dogs, carrying their all. Dusky warriors squatted on the ground in groups around fires built in the open air, smoking their pipes or repairing weapons and recounting their exploits. Half naked and naked children capering about in childish glee furnish a picture of the nomadic life of these Indians of strange interest. Not more than ten minutes are required to set up an Indian village. When it becomes necessary to move a village, which fact is never known to the people, a crier goes through the camp shouting, Igalakapo! Igalakapo, when all the squaws drop whatever work they may be engaged in, and in an instant are busy as bees, taking down teepees, bringing in the ponies and dogs, and loading them, and in less than 15 minutes, the cavalcade is on the march. The squaws accompany the men when they go to hunt buffalo, and as fast as the animals are killed, they strip off their hides and then cut off the meat in strips about 3 feet long, 3 to 4 inches wide, and 2 inches thick, and such is their skill that the bones will be left intact and free from meat as though they had been boiled. The meat is then taken to camp and hung up to dry. It is most filthy, being covered with grass and the excrement of the buffalo. The medicine men treat all diseases nearly alike. The principal efforts are directed to expelling the spirit, whatever it may be, which it is expected the medicine man will soon discover, and having informed the friends what it is, he usually requires them to be in readiness to shoot it as soon as he shall succeed in expelling it. Incantations and ceremonies are used, intended to secure the aid of the spirit, or spirits, the Indian worships. When he thinks he has succeeded, The medicine man gives the command, and from two to six or more guns are fired at the door of the tent to destroy the spirit as it passes out. Many of these medicine men depend wholly on conjuring, sitting by the bedside of the patient, making gestures and frightful noises, shaking rattles, and endeavoring by all means in their power to frighten the evil spirit. They use fumigation and are very fond of aromatic substances, using the burning cedar and and many different plants to cleanse the tent in which the sick person lies. The native plants, roots, herbs, and so forth are used freely and are efficacious. They are very careful to conceal from each other, except a few initiated, as well as from white men, a knowledge of the plants used as medicine, probably believing that their efficacy in some measure depends on this concealment. So here she's describing the fact that the Native American tribe that she was with, The Sioux used plants, roots, herbs, and other natural substances to treat illnesses, and that they were very effective. But she said that they're really careful and they don't tell very many people about these treatments. And she thought they believed that part of the effectiveness of the treatment relied on keeping it secret. I think it's really interesting that they had healing practices that were intertwined with their spiritual beliefs and that they guarded those practices. And like she said, they even guarded them from other tribe members as well. They only shared this knowledge with a few people who were initiated into the craft. And I think that's interesting. It speaks to the idea of like a sacred knowledge. It's not something that I believe in. I love to share knowledge freely, but I think it's just an interesting practice. Back to the book. There is a tall branching plant growing abundantly in the open woods and prairies near the Missouri River which is used chiefly by the Indians as a purgative and is Euphorbia corollata, well known to the botanist. Medicines are generally kept in bags made of the skin of some animal. All the drinks which are given the sick to quench thirst are astringent, sometimes bitter, and sometimes slightly mucilaginous. The most common is called red root, Xenothis canadensis, a plant abounding in the western prairies, although they seem to have more faith in some ceremony. A dance peculiar to the tribe where I was, called the pipe dance, is worth mentioning, and is called by the Indians a good medicine. A small fire is kindled in the village, and around this the dancers, which usually consist of young men, collect, each one seated upon a robe. The presiding genius is a chief or medicine man, who sits himself by a fire with a long pipe which he prepares for smoking. Offering it first to the great spirit, he then extends it towards the north, south, east, and west, muttering unintelligibly. Meanwhile, an equally august personage beats a drum, swinging and leaping and smoking. The master of ceremonies sits calmly looking on, puffing away, with all the vigor imaginable. The dance closes with piercing yells and barking like frightened dogs and it lasts an hour or more. So in this next part, it's where she describes their birthing practice. When the mother gives birth to her child, it is not uncommon for no other person to be present. She then lives in a hut or lodge by herself until the child is 25 or 30 days old. When she takes it to its father, who then sees his child, for the first time. Females, after parturition and also in other conditions, bathe themselves, swim as they express it, in the nearest river or lake. So here I think she's saying that women after giving birth and when she says, and also in other conditions, I think she might mean like when they're menstruating, that they still bathe themselves and they swim in rivers and lakes. And I'm sure she thinks that's strange, but I think it's probably a good idea to bathe yourself after you give birth and are in other conditions. (laughs) Back to the book. This is no doubt a most efficacious means of imparting strength and vigor to the constitution and it is certain that Indian females are less subject to what are termed female complaints than white women. So here she's saying that she believes this is a good practice, them bathing themselves in swimming, because she noticed that these Indian women have fewer female complaints than white women. It is an uncommon occurrence that an Indian woman loses her life in parturition. Parturition is giving birth and she's noticing that it is uncommon for Indian women to die in childbirth. And keep in mind, she said that these women go to a hut and give birth alone. We have a term for that these days. We call it free birthing. It is considered a controversial practice these days. Back to the book. When the child is old enough to run alone, it is relieved of its swathings, and if the weather is not too cold, it is sent off without a particle of clothing to protect it or impede the actions of its limbs, and in this manner, it is allowed to remain until it is several years old when it receives a limited wardrobe. Before I read the next section, I want to apologize for the antiquated language this is not wording that I would use myself. Despite the rugged and exposed life they lead. There are comparatively few cripples and deformed persons among them. It is said that deformed infants are regarded as unprofitable and a curse from the Great Spirit and disposed of by death soon after birth. Sometimes, at the death of a mother, the infant is also interred. An incident of this kind was related to me. A whole family had been carried off by smallpox except an infant. Those who were not sick had as much to do as they could conveniently attend to consequently there was no one willing to take charge of the little orphan it was placed in the arms of its dead mother enveloped in blankets and a buffalo robe and laid upon a scaffold in their burying place its cries were heard for some time but at last they grew fainter and finally were hushed altogether in the cold embrace of death with the moaning wind sounding its requiem and the wolves howling in the surrounding gloom a fitting dirge for so sad a fate The Indians believe that God or the Great Spirit created the universe and all things just as they exist. They believe the sun to be a large body of heat that revolves around the earth. Some believe it is a ball of fire. They do not comprehend the revolution of the earth around the sun. They suppose the sun literally rises and sets and that our present theory is an invention of the white man and that he is not sincere when he says the earth moves around the sun. They They say that paradise or the happy hunting grounds is above but where they have no definite idea though all think the future is a happier state they regard skill in hunting or success in war as the passport to eternal happiness and plenty where there is no cold or wet season still They all acknowledge it is a gift of the wahantanka, the great spirit. The manner of disposing their dead is one of the peculiar customs of the Indians of the plains which impresses the beholder for the first time most forcibly. Four forked posts are set up, and on them a platform is laid high enough to be out of reach of wolves or other carnivorous animals, and on this the body is placed wrapped in buffalo robes or blankets, and sometimes both according to the circumstances of the deceased, and these are wound securely with a strip of buffalo hide. If in the vicinity of timber the body is placed on a platform securely fixed in the crotch of a high tree, the wrappings of buffalo robe or blankets protect the body from ravenous birds that hover around, attracted by the scent of an anticipated feast. All that pertain to the dead while living in the way of furs, blankets, weapons, cooking utensils, etc., are are also deposited with the body. In some instances, the horse belonging to the deceased is shot. They believe that the spirit wanders off to a distant hunting ground, and as it may have to pass over a country where there is no game, a quantity of dried buffalo meat is usually left with the body for its subsistence. While on a journey, these burial places are held sacred as those of a Christian nation, and when a tribe is passing such localities, they will make a detour rather than go them More direct road by the resting place of their dead, while the relatives leave the trail and go alone to the spot and there renew and repeat their mourning as on the occasion of his death. They also leave presents for the dead of such little trinkets as he most prized before he departed to his new hunting grounds. There's obviously a lot more I could share from the book, but I think that gives you a surface understanding at least of what their spiritual practices were like. I find that sort of thing interesting and fascinating. I hope you found this informative. Thank you very much for listening to Path of a Green Witch Podcast.